You're listening to Zen Sandwich, a podcast for the independent mind and anyone who embraces life despite its absurdities. Join former attorney and professor turned Japanese papermaker Mark Reed each week as he talks with creative, inspiring, and influential people, or as he shares his own research to help make your world a little better today than it was yesterday. Hey, here we are again. Joining me for a second time on the program today is Dr. Massimo Piliucci, a professor of philosophy at the City College of New York. He holds two PhDs. He's an author of 16 books. Uh, His latest is called The Quest for Character. What the story of Socrates and I'm going to try to pronounce it right. Alcibiades. Is that right? Okay. That's right. Okay. Uh, what they teach us about uh, our search for good leaders. Uh, so, we, And we'll definitely talk about the book today. He's been a TEDx speaker. Honestly, his accolades are, are too lengthy to go into here. Um, so uh, if you haven't heard of the professor, I recommend you go read his Wikipedia page or just put his name into YouTube, and there's plenty of uh, stuff there. Um, and also for the listener who isn't knowledgeable about Stoicism, uh, or would like a more detailed uh, introduction, my guest today, I recommend you go listen to, I mean, listen to this episode now since you're here, but go listen to the first episode we did together. It was in Sandwich episode 69, and I, I simply called it What Stoics Say Today. Uh, in it, we discuss what, what Stoicism is and things like virtue ethics and the dichotomy of control. So, Professor, before we dive into your latest book, I do have a few questions that I didn't get to last time or are kind of extensions of that conversation. So, uh, and thank you for being here. <laughs> it's a pleasure for, to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, while we have seen a, a 21st century resurgence of Stoicism um, and, and seems to be increasing in popularity, can you describe in a nutshell well, what happened to it the first time around? I mean, it flourished for several hundred years. Why did it fall out of favor in around the third century, correct? Yes. I think the short answer is Christianity happened. Uh, okay. <laughs> not, not just to Stoicism, but to a lot of the, all of the other Hellenistic philosophies, Epicureanism, Platonism, etc. You know, the Platonic school, the academy was the last one to be officially closed uh, around 400 and something mm-hmm. uh, by one of the Christian emperors. So now that said, the decline had started before Christians actually took over the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. So it probably it's probably the result of a number of factors. But I think that the major one was that once Christians got in charge of the Roman Empire, that was it. Yeah, uh, I do understand that. <laughs> um, the other question I had from our first conversation back in January was that we uh, we briefly t- we touched on a lot of different areas, but uh, you had said something, and I uh, I had said so. There's kind of a golden rule um, element to stoicism, and you said that, that's right, and then you finished what you were saying. So I didn't actually get to do the follow up on that, so I'm going to do it now. Um, <laughs> so the golden rule for those who don't know, I'm sure most people, whether you're Christian or not, know is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So here's my follow-up. When I began to study Eastern philosophical traditions in college, I had a, a prominent professor that uh, had said that we were we were studying the Tao Te Ching, we were studying Taoism, and we were reading a you know one of the 
numerical excerpts from it or whatever. Anyway, um, the the professor pointed out, and this always stuck with me, that uh, it at first glance it might seem like there's a golden rule in Taoism too, but then he explained it's the different. There's a nuanced difference. So the golden rule is to do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, whereas in Taoism it would be don't do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. So in that way, it's kind of passive. You know, there's another principle in Taoism called Wu Wei, which is basically non-action, non-ado. And uh, so, you know, I I remember thinking about that a lot, whereas Christianity seems kind of the Christian version of the golden room seems kind of proactive where it's, you know, you might do something because you think you would want that done to you, uh, like preach or something like that. Right. But, uh, that person might not actually want the hat. Uh, so my question relating to stoicism is where on that sort of nuanced spectrum would it be closer to the don't do unto others as you would not have them do unto you or be proactive and do what you think is good things? That's a good question. Uh, I think it's stoicism is somewhere in between, actually, because the place in stoicism where you find something like the golden rule is in one of the three cardinal virtues. Stoics use four virtues as a kind of a moral compass to navigate life. One is practical courage wisdom. One? Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. No. Oh. Uh, practical wisdom, courage, justice, and temperance. Okay. The practical wisdom is the knowledge of what is good for you and what is not good for you, and therefore how should, you should act about it. Mm-hmm. Courage is you know, the willingness to do things despite the fact that it may cost you. Temperance is the idea of doing things in the right measure, neither too much nor too little. Now, justice is where you find, I think, uh, something cool. close to the golden rule. Gotcha. Because justice for, Stoi- for Stoics is an attitude, it, since it is a, uh, it's a behavioral attitude because it's a virtue. Mm-hmm. And it is defined as treating other people with respect the way in which you would want to be treated. Now, if you put it that way, that could be both the active and the passive version of the golden rule because treat others as you would like to be treated doesn't mean do to others what you would you know want them do to you not necessarily yeah uh, it doesn't however is not even as is not as uh, so as expansive as that but it's not as restrictive as just don't do you know the negative version of Taoism. it basically allows you for room for for maneuvering and say well mm-hmm. given this person and given who i am how should i uh behave in a way that is respectful uh, to the other person as a human being. So as usual with virtual ethics, there really is no rigid rule of any Mm. kind. There is just a overall suggestion for, you know, remember, don't be a jerk as such. (laughs) Remember, you're you're dealing with another human being that has his own wants and needs, etc. And they might not coincide with yours. Yeah, I think think in our first conversation, uh, we had used the the term situation ethics and mm-hmm. i i sort of like that I, I don't sort of i really like that uh that built-in flexibility in stoicism it's something that appeals to me about it right. um okay tell us uh about your uh your new book and the first thing i want you to tell us is uh that guy i can't pronounce that i i, <laughs> I did read up his biography and i was shocked at how much information there is and i'm like how did i not know who this person was but uh also yes alcibiades was actually the the 
inspiration for for the book uh the subtitle uh, does mention him directly and in fact my original idea was to write a book entirely only on socrates and alcibiades because they have an incredible relationship but then you know as as it happens projects kind of expand and so the book ballooned into something more general that has to do with the relationship between ethics and politics mm -hmm. as as it it is uh sort of focused on the notion of character and particularly the character of politicians or sta in statesmen but still the relationship between Socrates and Alcibiades is central. In fact, you know, three of the chapters in the book deal deal with it. Alcibiades was an incredible character. In fact, I'm surprised that there is no movie about his life yet. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I, it's, it's it would be I think it would be really interesting to do. So he was a at the time that the second chapter in my book starts, there is a dialogue um, between Socrates and Alcibiades. At the time, Alcibiades was in his early 20s. And Socrates was in his early 40s. And so Alcibiades was very young. And he was impossibly handsome, uber rich, brave, ambitious, yeah, you right. know, good at sports. I mean, like he won the <laughs> Olympic Games for, for chariot racing. And like it, 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 anything you could possibly want in a person, he had it. Mm. And therefore, uh, he, he got the notion that, of course, he should be leading Athens at some point. He should be you know, a leading politician, leading statesman of, of Athens. He was actually the adoptive son of um, of the, the the current leader, the then leader of, of Athens at the beginning. We're talking about the beginning of um, the Peloponnesian War. So he goes to Socrates and says, so how, how do I do this? What, what do you think? Is this a good idea? Mm -hmm. Should I uh, should I do, go this uh, and, and try to be, you know, the first citizen of Athens? And Socrates basically sits him down uh, and carries out what we would today call a job interview. <laughs> like, okay, so tell me, what, what would you do and you know, what would your priorities be, etc. And the relationship between Socrates and Alcibiades was complex because Alcibiades was both Socrates' friend and his student. And apparently he wanted to be his lover, although Socrates wasn't interested. So, so it was complicated. And... Um, at some point uh, during the sort of this, this informal job interview, Socrates begins to realize that no, Alcibiades just does not have what it takes because despite all of the good stuff about him, he just has a flawed character. <laughs> he is a narcissist. He, he wants to get into politics, not in order to help the polis of Athens. He wants to get into politics because he wants, you know, self-aggrandizing is, is his motivation. So... At some point, therefore, Socrates actually lays it out pretty thick on Alcibiades. He says, and, and I quote, Then, alas, Alcibiades, what a condition you suffer from. I hesitate to name it, but since we two are alone, it must be said. You are wedded to stupidity, best of men, <laughs> of the extreme sort, as, as the argument accuses you and you accuse yourself. Mm. So this is why you are leaping into the affairs of the city before you have been educated. This is pretty hard stuff, right? This is Socrates basically telling, telling Alcibiades, don't do it. Just don't go there. The word that Socrates uses in that bit that I just mentioned, uh, which is translated often as stupidity, is actually amatia, which is a Greek word that is, I think, best translated as unwisdom. Mm. So Socrates is saying to Alcibiades, you just lack the only thing that is really important when you get into politics, wisdom. 
And that's that's still, that happens a lot today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hence the rest of the book. That's right. right. <laughs> well, uh, you know, we'll, we'll go there. Uh, well, I do want to talk about philosophy and, and politics, and, uh, but I, I do have another question to ask. So in the book, you say, uh, this is early on, you say in order to live a good life, we need a society where people act virtuously. How do we do that in this current political climate and this gulf between conservatives and liberals where so much vitriol, so much hatred is just spewed out by both sides? Yeah, well, that's a great question. And in a sense, that is one of the two fundamental questions that I ask in the book. The other one being, how do we all become better people? No, that's that's why, the, hence the title, The Quest for Character. Because after all, character is not important just for our statesmen and politicians. It's important for everybody. And the answer is, it ultimately is up to us, to each one of us, uh, to, in, in two respects at least. First of all, yes, you mentioned that right now sort of political discussions are all about partisan bickering. In fact, I have some of my own students here at City College in New York that claim not to be interested in politics because you know, it's, it ruins everything. And because, you know, you can't really talk to people about it because people mm. get upset. I think the mistake there is confusing politics for partisanship. They're mm. not the same thing. The word politics comes from the Greek polis, which means community, right? Mm. So to be political literally means to give a crap about your community. <laughs> and right. it seems to me like, Everybody should be giving a crap about their community because that's how human beings live and, and thrive, right? We are social beings. So you, you ought to be concerned with your community to make it better as much, as much as it is possible. But that doesn't mean that you have to engage in partisanship. You don't have to say, oh, I'm right or I'm left or I am whatever. I'm green or I'm libertarian right. or whatever your, your thing is. In fact, even the American founding fathers were already in the 1700s wary of the notion of partisanship. They actually were worried that eventually parties would would be. Right. And it did happen right away. I mean, George Washington happened very quickly. Yes. only president that didn't have a party. Exactly. And then exactly. next you get Adams and Jefferson, you know, already arguing. So the so part of the issue, part of the answer there to the question is move away from partisanship. Mm -hmm. Remember that this is about making a better place to live for everybody. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we're going to agree on things, right. uh, but we can at least agree not to fight to the death, which right. is what you know, partisanship uh, often often triggers. That's one thing. The other the other component, I think, to the answer of you know how do we improve things is well, we used to give a damn about character, and we don't anymore. Mm. Uh, so it, character has become a old-fashioned uh, word that uh, certain people just say, "Oh, that's that's a, a leftover of the patriarchy," and you know, it's like we shouldn't be really talking. It's all about structural issues. In other words, uh, it's all about structural racism or st structural uh, sexism, and so on and so forth. And it certainly is the case that there are such things as structural racism, structural uh, sexism, and so on and so forth. And we do need to work on those. But that's not exclusive, that it's not mutually exclusive with the notion that there is also an issue of character, meaning that we want the best people for the job. And the best people for the job of a politician, of a statesman, are people of good character. 
And the problem is, you know, at least in semi-democratic societies like the United States, we are responsible ultimately for that because we we are the ones that put these people in charge. You know, in the United States, poll after poll shows that politicians are really lowly regarded by the American public. That is, it's, you know, if, if you ask the average American, you know, what, where do you think politicians rank in terms of, you know, like a job as a <laughs> as a kind of person? It's like it's very low. It's barely above murderers and rapists, right? right? Uh, but then, <laughs> but then the question is, who puts those people there? We yeah, we do, yeah. right? Uh, ultimately, we are the ones that that uh, ought to be paying attention. And so, the book, in part, is a call for us to just reevaluate this notion of character. Character is important. Look, I'll tell you one thing. So, I have my own, of course, political ideas. Uh, hmm. If you want to put me in a somewhat of a box, I I tend to be more progressive liberal, certainly than libertarian or 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 conservative, yeah. but a match rather have a good person, a character with a, a person with a good character leaning away from my political preferences than somebody of my political preferences, whoever is a crook or, or a narcissist. I can give you a perfect example of that the, uh, actually, um, I know you've been on several podcasts. So you might not remember that uh, I had a I have a friend that he considers himself a stoic. And so I had asked him, um, do you have any questions for Professor Massimo? And uh, he he had a pretty good one. And uh, about, you know, his about his family, um, his wife and and his daughter, they don't get it and they think he doesn't get it. And, you know, what should they do? What, he, what should he do when they they are seemingly very emotional? Anyway, uh, I, we've answered that question. I don't mean to repeat that one, but that this guy, <clears throat> um, he's conservative and, and I, I'm not I, I, I consider myself an independent. I, I, I consider myself, you know, um, but I would vote for him because he's he's rational. Like so, exactly. yeah. I he's not he's conservative, but he he's not uh he's not into partisan politics either. So I like right. you know if uh you know if the party if he was if he ran as a Republican and they told him, hey, this is the party line on this election, he he would you know say no, I disagree if he disagreed or whatever. So anyway, so yeah. I, I get no, that's right, that's right. So I would uh, you know just to give you. Uh, a stark example, I guess. I would rather vote for a Winston Churchill than for a Bill Clinton. <laughs> and, and even though my politics allow, align much more with Clinton than with Churchill, mm. I recognize that Clinton has a deeply flawed character, at least from what you can tell from the public <laughs> actions. Yeah. And uh, therefore, you know, I wouldn't trust him. So if we, but you see where this is going. If we started thinking that way, meaning putting more attention to character and, and intentions than to the specifics of the political platform, right? Not that that's not important, because I do want to have an idea what the what, what a candidate would do once in office or would try to do once in office. Right. But if we started shifting our attention uh, more to our character, then we actually would more often than, than not, we might agree that, you know what, this this person isn't exactly, doesn't exactly represent my own ideas about how to run the country but i recognize that he's a good person he's going to try to do his best and so mm. at least he's not going to make a mess out of out of things right, right. and that would be a, definitely an improvement over the situation mm. that we are we have now so should we have philosopher kings <laughs> well, 
well, we shouldn't have any kings. Um, oh, yeah, there you go. You know, to to begin with, in despite what the Brits just did. <laughs> so, uh, but we should have philosophers in charge. Now, of course, as soon as you say that, you say, "What? Well, of course, you're a philosopher. Naturally, you'd like to be in charge." But by philosopher here, I don't mean somebody like me with a PhD that works in academia and you know and and writes about abstruse subject matters uh, for for the living. I mean somebody as the Greco-Romans meant. That is, a philosopher is somebody who tries to live a philosophical life, meaning a life of where where thinking and reflection and evidence drive what you're doing. What you're trying to do, we're consciously trying to do the right the right thing and to improve yourself. That is a philosopher in the broad sense of the term. And of course, we would all want to be philosophers in that sense, I would hope. Right. So when we say, you know, philosophers should run the country, uh, we mean good people who are paying attention to, to ethical self-improvement and to the welfare of others should be running the country. And I would think that that kind of statement should be pretty uncontroversial. Yeah, I, well, I agree 100%. I, uh, because the... I, I don't know. I don't want to get into a debate of, or a discussion of idealism versus realism. But, you know, the, the potential problem with having philosophers as leaders is that, well, philosophers can be a bit idealistic sometimes, with, you know, without. Being... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have I have the perfect quote, actually, uh, about about that. So in, in my book, at some point, uh, when the chapter that is about philosopher kings, in fact, starts out with a quote by Cicero. Cicero was a Roman statesman and politician and philosopher. And he was very practical. He was he was he, he had an idea in mind. He wanted to uh save essentially the Roman Republic, which this this is the time of Julius Caesar. The Republic was about to end right. and turn into an empire. And uh Cicero had this principled idea. I I need to save the Republic. I need to work in however possible in that direction. However, he was also a politician, so he was pragmatic. One of his friends was a Stoic senator named Cato the Younger. And Cato had a reputation for high level of integrity. I mean, he was so well-respected in Rome that if somebody uh, slipped up and didn't do the right thing and people called on him, they, they might say, well, not everybody can be a Cato. So Cato was this, this high standard of, of behavior. However, he was also intransigent. He was also very rigid. And Cicero at one point, at one point writes a letter to his lifelong friend Atticus and mentions Cato. And he says, as for our friend Cato, you do not love him more than I do. But after all, with the very best intentions and the most absolute honesty, he sometimes does harm to the Republic. He speaks and votes as though he were in the Republic of Plato, not in the scum of Romulus. Mm -hmm. I love this image that, you know, if you're intransigent, you act as if you were in Plato's Republic, in other words, in, in Utopia, right. instead of acknowledging that you are in, you live in the scum of Romulus. Romulus, of course, was the founder of, of Rome, right? We all live in the scum of Romulus. We don't live in Plato's Republic. And so you need to compromise. A good politician is not just somebody who has a good character and wants to do the right thing, but also somebody who has the practical wisdom, emphasis on practical, right. to realize that they need to compromise. Mm. Anybody that tells you, any politician that says, when I'm going to go there, I'm going to do this and that and the other without qualifications, as right. if you 
they were an emperor in charge of things. That's right. not, not going to work. Every presidential election. <laughs> Correct. It does. Yeah. Exactly. Well, uh, Professor, uh, how how can people uh, buy the book? How can they find you and follow you and, you know, uh, well, in the, the book site to go to? Yeah, the book is found anywhere you find books. But um, as far as uh, all my writings, podcasting, videos, and all that sort of stuff, uh, um, people can go to MassimoPLUG.org. Uh, that, that's different than last time, wasn't it? Didn't you have yeah, a Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. I changed. I changed it. Okay, <laughs> it seems to be easier to remember. <laughs> well, I'm glad I I asked you. Uh, so I'll I'll make sure I put that in the in the um, podcast notes here. Thank you. So, uh, folks, after you go by uh, Professor Piliucci's latest book, uh, after you do that, uh, if you got three bucks left over, you can go to Patreon.com/slash/SendSandwich and help uh, this guy out and. Uh, <laughs> but buy the book first anyway i really appreciate your time um today and uh um thanks for being on the show it's been a pleasure <laughs>